Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. The day has come. Just over six months after David Cicilline decided to leave Congress, it's time for voters to pick the person who's very likely to become his replacement. We've got our own Dan McGowan and Steph Machado here in the studio to give you the latest updates on the race. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. All right, welcome back and welcome to Primary Day. I'm here with my colleagues, Steph Machado and Dan McGowan. Thank you for coming in, Dan and Steph. Happy Primary Day. Thanks for having us. So Dan, first, tell us how many candidates are on the ballot today. Who has a legitimate chance of winning this thing? We, we've got 12 candidates on the ballot, although one has withdrawn. That's Don Carlson. This is in the Democratic primary side, of course. Realistically, I think... There are probably four candidates who have uh, a legitimate chance at winning today. I think former State Representative Aaron Regenberg seemingly is the favorite. Gabe Amo, the former Biden aide. Um, Sandra Cano, the state senator. And Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos. Those are realistically the only people who I think can pull this thing off. Steph, do you agree? What what do you see as the uh, top contenders at, in this race? Yeah, Dan's right. Those are the four top contenders, although I say this with uh, five million caveats because, of course, we we had no public polling in this race. We've been talking about it for weeks and months. So we're basing this on, you know, some internal polling, what we're seeing on the ground as reporters and a little bit of intuition on, uh, you know, money, all those different things that, that factor in in terms of those being the top four candidates. But the only poll that matters is the one that's happening, of course, in the ballot booth. And another poll that matters, though, is, Dan, you had a, a Democratic primary contest in your Roadmap newsletter, and you, it's too late to send in your list, but what does the winner get if they pick the correct order of finish? Yeah, I think there might be more voters in the Roadmap <laughs> primary contest uh, than, than there will actually be today you know, at the ballot box. But uh, if you win and 
There are hundreds and hundreds of, of submissions. You get lunch with Dan McGowan at Sandwich Hut. <laughs> wow. So wow. Lots of people are don't want to win now. If yeah, I were yeah, I'd like yeah. to donate my that's, lunch to the next person in line. That's a disincentive right there. But, but uh, it, I know that's not a scientific poll, but who's leading in that poll? Yeah, not scientific, but, you know, it, it is a good indicator of sort of where – uh, you know, you hate to say the insiders think things will go, but but certainly there are lots of people, lots of people on the cam on campaigns and people who have monitored politics for a really long time right now, and people who we trust, uh, who probably don't want their names out there actually submitting. Uh, and overwhelmingly, I think Aaron Regenberg is is considered the favorite. One forty seven percent of people submitted uh, think that Aaron Regenberg's probably going to win, and I think that's a reasonable take. I mean, I would say I think Aaron Regenberg's probably the favorite in this race. So, Steph, let's talk about one of the storylines in this campaign. Rhode Island could elect a person of color or a Democratic woman to Congress for the first time in this election. To what extent are voters taking that into account, do you think, as they decide who to vote for? So I think it's a factor. I don't think it's necessarily the number one factor for a lot of voters. Of course, they want to make sure they align with the person, you know, their chosen candidate. And if you just look at the people supporting Aaron Regenberg, I think there are plenty of people who support him who would like to send a woman of color or a woman in general to Congress, but they best align with his progressive views on, let's say, climate, Medicare for all, the bur- sort of Bernie wing of the Democratic Party. And, I, you know, I think of last year when we had an open seat in CD2, and it's obviously a, a completely different situation. But a lot of people said it's time to send a Democratic woman to Congress. But the Democratic Party ultimately nominated Seth Magaziner because they felt that he was best positioned to beat Alan Fung in the general election. So voters might take into account the uh, gender or ethnicity of the person that they would like to be representing Rhode Island, but ultimately there's other factors that go into play that's not necessarily the number one. I I agree with Steph on this one. I think it could have been more of a factor, quite honestly, if the field was smaller. Hmm. Uh, If this was a one-on-one race between Sabina Matos uh, and Aaron Regenberg or Sandra Cano and Aaron Regenberg, uh, I think there would have been a more compelling case to make uh, to elect a woman. You'd have seen, I think, more energy around that. But you have a bunch of women in this race. You have a bunch of uh, minority candidates in this race. And so, you know, that argument is is almost hollowed out a little bit. You know, on stage, you look at the candidates debating each other. The majority of them are people of color. And so it's hard to make that case if you're if you're Sabina Matos, it's hard to stand up there and say, it's time to send a person of color. You could send a bunch of us, but you should send me. That's a more convoluted answer than kind of that straightforward argument that maybe you could make if it was one-on-one or one-on-two or something like that. And down the home stretch, we've seen uh, big-name politicians come into town. We had Bernie Sanders coming for Regenberg. We had Patrick Kennedy coming into Providence for Gabe Amo. To what extent, Dan, is this election a proxy war between the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the more establishment uh, Democratic Party? I think if you're Gabe Amo, who's the kind of perceived as either the second or third favorite in this race, you want this to be a proxy war, right? You want it to be your choice. Aaron Regenberg, the Bernie Sanders candidate, you know, kind of far left version, you know, of this race, uh, of of this field, and then me as the alternate, right? I'm not sure it has worked out that way throughout it. And the reason being is that there are so many candidates who sound exactly the same, right? The only candidate in this race 
um, who at least the only candidate with with a chance to win uh, that sounds different is an Aaron Regenberg, while as the other candidates are all kind of fighting for the middle. So it's easy to position it as a as a proxy war. I think it's convenient, but it hasn't really played out that way on the ground. Steph, what do you think? Is CD1 a really progressive district or or is it just your typical average Democratic blue district? You know, I think there's a it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum of Democrats from more moderate or even a little bit conservative Democrats all the way to progressive or even sort of the socialist wing of the party. And of course, there are tons of unaffiliated voters in this district. So this district leans blue. So more of those unaffiliated voters would will vote in the Democratic primary compared to the Republican. But there's people with a wide variety of views. The question is how they're going to split it up among 11 different candidates. All right. Dan, when David Cicilline first announced he was vacating the seat, Lieutenant Governor Matos was considered the front runner. She had name recognition as the only statewide office holder. So what happened to her and can she recover? I think it's really hard to recover at this point. You get six, basically six consecutive weeks of relatively negative coverage uh, for, of her own doing, her own campaign's doing on the whole signature kind of scandal issue. It's really hard to recover from that. I will say I've always been skeptical of, of Sabina Matos as the, you know, strong front runner. It's totally entirely possible that she she would have won this race if not for the signature issue. But, you know, you'd peel back the onion a little bit. Providence, you know, the East Side makes up a huge percentage of the Providence vote here. The East Side of Providence was never the biggest fan of Sabina Matos. She never had a deep base there. She was always going to struggle in Pawtucket against Sandra Cano, who's from there. I think she'll do well in East Providence. But she, while she did have name recognition from running as the lieutenant governor or running for lieutenant governor just last year, the makeup of the voter base here never quite favored her that well. And so I would never have made her the heavy favorite to win. Maybe she was because she had the name recognition, the money, but uh, this just didn't line up well. And then when things don't bounce your way, then you're really, you're really in the hole. Steph, you and I went to a lot of the early forums. We saw this as a sleepy race with a ton of people agreeing about just about every issue. What the heck happened? It definitely took on a different characteristic in the last month. Yeah, I think part of the reason it was so sleepy for so long was, one, it's an it's an off year. It's an off election year. People aren't paying a lot of attention in the summer. There were so many candidates. I think at one point there might have been 35. <laughs> and And the field, of course, narrowed, but it didn't narrow – by that much. We still have double digits on the Democratic primary ballot. And so it was hard for candidates to to really get a ton of news coverage. They weren't doing a lot of press conferences, events. I don't think any of them did a big kickoff to announce their campaign. They announced their campaigns um, in press releases. And so it was just sleepy for a while. And then I actually think the signature scandal with Sabina Mato sort of kicked off a, a, a big round of news cycles about the race. And then we went into the forums and debates and, and other candidates also had scandals. Um, Aaron Regenberg, of course, Don Carlson. And that is sort of what took the race into, you know, place where people were paying attention to what's going on. But even now, I mean, this past week, days before the primary, friends are texting me, hey, what's the deal with this congressional race? Should I vote in this? Do I live in this district? And yeah, I'm, people know, are still tuning in. And tell us about Car Carlson. His name is going to be on the ballot, right? That's right. Don Carlson withdrew from the race following great investigative reporting by former colleagues of, of Dan and myself over at Channel 12. They found that he had sent inappropriate text messages to a student at Williams College when he was a professor 
semester there, and the college asked him not to come back the next year. He spent some time trying to kill the story, but then ultimately confirmed um, most of the elements of the story, and Williams College also confirmed other elements, and he dropped out of the race. But his name will still be on the ballot because the, the printing deadline had passed. Right, right. And so did any big policy differences emerge during the campaign? Depends on your definition of big. You know, I think the traditional progressive versus moderate Democrat policy differences that we see, right? Some candidates might support Medicare for all, like Aaron Regenberg, whereas Gabe Amo supports keeping private health insurance, but with a public option, right? So I don't know if I would call those big policy differences, but they're the general policy differences you see between the wings of the Democratic Party. There's also the more fringe candidates, like Alan Waters, who used to be a Republican. He has like drastically different policy opinions, but he's not really in the top tier of candidates that we're having conversations about. Stephen Casey, um, the state rep, is a more moderate Democrat, has a lot of policy disagreements um, when it comes to things like guns um, with the rest of the candidates. The other thing that was big was the debt ceiling. Aaron Regenberg was the only candidate who said he would have voted no on the debt ceiling bill that went before Congress several months ago. I think it was actually David Cicilline's last vote before he resigned. And Cicilline Um, uh, voted for the debt ceiling deal. That's right. And and Regenberg said he would have voted against it. And then at a debate, he was asked, well, if you were the deciding vote, how would you have voted? He said, well, in that case, I would have voted yes. So he got he was sort of accused of some grandstanding there that his that his vote, his no vote was sort of uh, symbolic. Right, right. So, Dan, how much have endorsements mattered in this race? And who got the endorsements that come with the boots on the ground support that really can make a difference? Yeah, I mean, endorsements, right, you, you just nailed the ones that matter versus the ones that don't really matter. Boots on the ground, right? That's one factor that comes with endorsements. Money is the other big one, right? If you're willing to throw in and, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars into a super PAC with an endorsement, that really helps, right? Because it gets you on television. It gets you maybe attacking your opponents or sending mailers. Those top tier candidates we've talked about, all of them can have some claim to key endorsements. You know, Sandra Cano has made it completely her ground game and her strategy to lock up lots of the insider endorsements. Her colleagues in the state's Senate, some state representatives, to try to basically make the case that I can win this race if I run my campaign like it's a Senate race in each little community, right? If I can just win the Senate districts in every race in the first district, I win the race. That is her argument. It seems to be a somewhat compelling one. Uh, we'll see how it how it actually plays out on the ground. Remember, it's much harder to you know, convince someone to vote for somebody else as opposed to yourself. So if you're a, a senator saying, I really want you to vote for Sandra Cano, doesn't mean that you're necessarily as a voter going to do that. Aaron Regenberg's racked up a ton of the progressive endorsements. We mentioned Bernie Sanders, AOC. You know, those are endorsements that I think they generate sort of excitement within your base, right? So Bernie Sanders isn't putting boots on the ground for you. But if, if you're a voter who maybe is not paying that close attention to this election, but you love Bernie Sanders, well, now you have a candidate who, who Bernie tells you to vote for. That could really help. You know, Sabina Matos had a very traditional path. She she had Layuna, the, the laborers, supporting her. Uh, she relied on a lot, Emily's List and a lot of the national groups to come in, flood the race with a little bit of money. And then Gabe Amo, very late, you know, interestingly, Gabe Amo, 
for a bunch of months had all these endorsements coming in from mayors all over the country. And I think we all kind of looked at each other and sort of rolled our eyes and said, well, you can't get any endorsements here locally. But his campaign really whipped into shape and less so with endorsements, but just emerging as that alternative candidate to the Bernie Sanders back candidate. He has gained some momentum um, in these last couple of weeks. And, and talk to us about turnout. That's part of your Democratic primary contest, right? The tiebreaker. How many people do you expect to vote in total and how much will the winner get to decide the next congressperson from Rhode Island? Yeah, I mean, this could be historically low because the Democratic primary is clearly going to decide the next member of Congress. You're talking about potentially 8,000 votes wins this race for for any number of the candidates. I think as of Friday, about 11,000 people, 11,300 people had voted by mail or voted early. That number will tick up a little bit because mail ballots are still coming in. Let's say double that, you know, on election day, you could be talking 22, 23, 25,000 voters deciding this race when traditionally you'd be, you know, well into the 40 and 50 and 60,000 number. Steph, the early exit of Carlson has renewed calls for either limiting early voting or moving to ranked choice voting. Do you see either of those catching fire? I don't see limiting early voting as an issue that's going to get significant traction in Rhode Island. Perhaps if we didn't have early voting yet and it was being discussed how many days before the election should it take place, people might say, okay, maybe it should be 10 because so much so many, so much changes at the end. But now that we have 20 days of early voting, I just don't see that changing. There's not an appetite for limiting voter access. Ranked choice voting is is really interesting. We're seeing a lot of the candidates in this race say that they we should have ranked choice voting because then voters can put they can really vote for who they can vote for the person that they want regardless of that person's chances of winning and then they can put their second, third, fourth choice candidates all the way down to make sure that their vote counts even if their chosen candidate gets 4% of the vote, right? Yeah, and in this case Carlson's voters would have had uh, a second choice, and those votes would have counted. Exactly. People voted for Don Carlson before he dropped out of the race in the early voting and mail voting period. And so those voters wouldn't feel sort of disenfranchised like their vote didn't count. Now, I will say that was a risk they took, right? Like they chose to vote 15, 20 days before the election, knowing that things can always change. But yes, they could sort of feel like their vote counted if they were able to put their second, third, fourth choice candidate. So I don't know. I think it will be, still be Herculean to get that passed through the legislature because things have all, you know, things have always been the way that they are in our voting system. But I think it'll definitely be discussed for sure. Yeah, the people in the assembly were elected with the current system, so they don't have a yeah. uh, a motivation to change it. Um, Steph, also talk to us about there's a Republican primary today. Remind us who's running and who the favorite is and why. Yes, yeah, so there's two Republicans running, uh, Jerry Leonard and Terry Flynn. Leonard is the endorsed candidate from the Republican Party. So he's the favorite to win. You know, the Republican primary has not been covered very heavily because as we've been discussing, it's a very blue district. So the seat is expected to stay blue. But if you want to learn more about the Republican candidates, Patrick Anderson from The Journal and Ian Donis from The Public's Radio taped uh, really great interviews with both of them that are on the Rhode Island PBS uh, YouTube page. What chances a Republican winner stand in the November 7th general election? The chances are low. The district's voter registration is 44% Democrats, 44% unaffiliated, and just 12% Republican. So you might say, oh, well, 44% unaffiliated, but we know that those unaffiliated voters lean blue. We can see that. For example, President Joe Biden trounced Donald Trump 
in uh, the 2020 presidential election. So even though there are a lot of unaffiliated voters, the district leans blue. Yeah, and you haven't seen a Republican come within 10 points since John Laughlin back in 2010. So, I mean, it's been a really long time. The, the state looked a lot different back then, too. Uh, and, and and John Laughlin was actually quite a good candidate who was well-known and was already a state representative. So it's going to be very difficult for a Republican to win this race uh, on November 7th. Steph, the first congressional district race isn't the only primary today. What other elections are taking place? Yes, there's two other elections. One is the uh, state Senate District 1 race to um, replace the late Mary Ellen Goodwin. There are four Democrats running in the primary in Providence, Jake Basilian, State Rep. Nathan Bia, Michelle Rivera, and Mario Monsebo. There's also a Republican, Neoka Powell, but there's no primary on the Republican side. And this race is, has not gotten a lot of attention, frankly, because we have a congressional special primary going on at the same time. And then there's also a primary for a town council seat in Foster. And so, you know, if you don't live in CD1, that doesn't mean you don't have an election today. You can go check online, vote.ri.gov, and see if you might live in one of those other two districts. I've also got a lot of questions from voters in Cranston because there is a special election to replace uh, Matthew Riley, who resigned following um, his arrest several months ago. That election is not until October 3rd. So there's no primary today, but voters in Cranston, you have another month to figure figure out who, if you're in Ward 6, to figure out who you want to vote for in that race. And Dan, nitty-gritty information, when do the polls open and when do they close today? Polls open at 7 a.m. and they close at 8 p.m. So get out there and vote. And Steph, how do you find out where to vote? You can go to vote.ri.gov and your polling place may be different from what it is normally because it's a special election. They are opening fewer polling places than normal. I actually got a little postcard in the mail from the city of Providence with my polling place on it. But if you didn't get that from your town or city, you can find it online. Also, early voting continues until 4 p.m., which is unusual. It's a quirk of the law because of the Labor Day holiday. So if it's more convenient for you to go to your town or city's early voting location, which is usually City Hall, that continues until 4 p.m. And Steph, you spoke to the Board of Elections the other day. When will the results be available? So they'll start rolling in shortly after 8 o'clock, maybe around 8.15. All the mail ballots that are dropped in drop boxes on primary day, those won't be counted until later in the week. And there will also be provisional ballots and overseas military ballots. Well, that's not too many, right? Not too many. So it only matters if there's if it's really close. It's very narrow. Yep. All right. Dan, Steph, drink a lot of coffee. Thank you for joining mm-hmm. me today. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed. We'll be reporting on the primary all day and into the night. For the latest updates, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island and tune into the podcast tomorrow for a special debrief on the results. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor, follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Talk to you tomorrow. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. 
Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org slash passport. That's ripbs.org slash passport.